Hello and welcome to this month's episode of Faith in Politics. Coming up this month, we have a monthly musing by Mark Harris on the topic of leadership. In the news, we'll be talking about Brexit. Then we will have an interview with Lord Paul Botang. And finally, a roundup and some book recommendations. So to begin with this month, we're going to be having a monthly musing by Reverend Mark Harris, in which he talks to us about power. The exercise of power is an inevitable part of being human. But how do we exercise it rightly? In the secularising West, where belief in God is in decline, even more reliance is now placed on political power to deliver the good life that we yearn for. The Bible has a lot to say about power, but it speaks of a power that is very different from our contemporary understanding. It's a power that can not only transform our personal lives, but our public lives too. It is talked about by a man who has influenced the history of the world in the last 2,000 years more than any other, Jesus of Nazareth. There's a passage in chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel where two of Jesus' disciples come to him and say, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. At this point in his ministry, they think he's a political revolutionary who will overthrow the occupying Romans and they want the top cabinet seats in his future government. Nothing much has changed in 2,000 years. We still pursue power. Yes, with noble intentions of achieving great good for society. But also, if we're honest, thinking that it will give us influence, recognition, fulfilment, and security amidst the uncertainties of life. There's a problem, though, with this pursuit of power. We think we are powerful to control our lives, but the truth is, we are not. Even when we reach positions of power, we're still vulnerable to factors beyond our control. Just ask Hillary Clinton or David Cameron. No matter how much we try to exercise power to control our lives, the powers of other people, of illness and death constantly intervene to take our power away. In response to the disciples' bid for power, Jesus says there is a much deeper power they can possess, one that will not only transform their lives, but through them the lives of others too. Verse 45 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, reads like this. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says that to receive this power, they first need to be ransomed by him. In New Testament times, slaves could be freed by the payment of a ransom. Jesus uses this metaphor to illustrate the meaning of his death on the cross. If the God of the Bible exists, then we owe him everything. But we don't live like that. Our lives are all about securing our own power. We have an infinite debt to God, but we cannot pay it. In his death 2,000 years ago, Jesus paid this debt for us. He ransomed us so that we might know God and know his forgiveness. What greater power can we possess than this? It cannot be taken away from us in life or in death. 
Furthermore, it is not the self-centred kind of power that we experience so often in contemporary Western societies, where the purpose of life is to exercise power to achieve our own survival. The liberating power of being forgiven by the God who made us enables us to turn away from ourselves to seek the good of others. There's a politician who came to understand this, William Wilberforce. He became an MP in 1780 and described his early political life as follows. The first years in Parliament I did nothing to any purpose. My own distinction was my darling object. However, five years after he entered Parliament, he became a Christian. He discovered the transforming power of God's ransoming forgiveness, which turned him outwards from himself to serve others. The lives of millions were transformed as he went on to secure the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, an achievement described as a turning point in the history of the world. Who knows what you might do with that kind of power? So for this month's interview, we are delighted to have with us Lord Paul Botang. He is a former MP and now currently sitting in the House of Lords. He was elected in 1987 as the MP for Brent South, then went on to a string of ministerial roles, including the first Minister for Young People. He then moved on to the Treasury, where he was first the Financial Secretary and then the Chief Secretary. This meant he was the first mixed-race Cabinet Minister in British political history. Well, welcome to uh, Faith in Politics, Lord Boateng. Uh, it's a real pleasure to um, to have this conversation with you, uh, and particularly at such a, a consequential time in, in the life of our nation. Um, I wondered whether you could um, talk a little bit about your knowledge and experiences of, of countries where unstable government is, is more uh, common, and, and whether that informs the way that you view um, what's going on here at the moment with our government around Brexit. My life and experience has been in... British politics, and before that as a child growing up in West Africa, in the Gold Coast, and then and then Ghana, and then subsequent to my departure from British politics and becoming High Commissioner to South Africa in an African context. So I've seen political systems at different stages in their evolution. And my experience of what's happening at the moment in our own country, in, in Britain, is that it's reflective of a global uh, crisis of confidence in the machinery of government, in the uh, political class, uh, and in politics as it's done in the 21st century, at a time in which the old ideological lines have been blurred, broken down, ideology has been driven out of politics post the collapse uh, of uh, the uh, Berlin Berlin Wall at a time of 24-hour news cycle uh, of uh, the uh, internet. Uh, politics is different and we do not seem globally to have developed uh, a response to the conditions in which we find ourselves. And this takes uh, different forms in different countries. I spend some of my time working on African issues uh, with the U- in the US and with uh, US-based uh, colleagues and, and institutions. They're going through a similar crisis. If I look at South Africa in relation 
to the uh, and Zimbabwe in relation to the post-liberation politics of those uh, of those countries, they too are going through uh, a similar uh, crisis in which confidence in established institutions and in the machinery of government has has broken down. That's what we're experiencing in the UK. That's what they're experiencing in France. That's what they're experiencing in Italy. That's what they're experiencing in Germany. That's what they're experiencing in Hungary. And the political class, but not just the political class, importantly, all of us, and faith has a very important part to play in this, have to formulate a response, and a response that is respectful uh, of the importance of engaging people in institutions and in the political process, that is respectful of the importance of vision, values uh, in politics, and the genuine and real differences that arise uh, from that. And we have to develop um, uh, a... A governance system, whether it's uh, in terms of our political institutions or our corporate institutions, civil society as a whole, which addresses the fundamental issues of the time that are around equality and identity, or rather the absence uh, of equality and gross and deepening inequality in our world, even as the economy uh, grows. Uh, and an identity that has been challenged in all sorts of ways uh, without an adequate response. Uh, and surely uh, we who purport to follow Jesus Christ ought to be able to present uh, a response to both those issues of inequality and justice uh, and, and identity. Because we find our identity, do we not, uh, in in Christ, uh, and Christ's call uh, is to address issues around poverty, around marg- uh, around marginalisation. So, if we're true to be, if we are to, if we're true to Him, then we must surely find a response. Absolutely, and I think it's really helpful to think about the problems in the context of of um, people finding uh, loss of identity, and that's not just in this country. But I wonder, uh, thinking about the the new Labour governments and thinking about the way that. Um, thinking about the way that the new Labour governments um, approached Europe, I wonder whether there was more that could have been done to uh, promote the benefits of of integration with Europe. I think we made a a real mistake uh, in new Labour, and and it it wasn't actually in relation to Europe. Indeed, uh, had we joined the euro, the situation would be infinitely worse, (laughs) both in terms of uh, the issue of of, of inequality in our own country, but also uh, around... Uh, the political issues. Had we joined the euro, the situation would have been much worse. So one of the benefits of new Labour was not joining the euro, frankly, uh, because that would have been a, a disaster. But I think the fundamental error we made in, in, in new Labour was ourselves too much to buy in, frankly, uh, to this notion of managerial politics in which it's not actually about, supposedly not about ideology, not about conflicting vision and values, uh, but but about managing the system better. Well, we made a mistake there, didn't we? Because the result uh, of uh, our becoming overly managerial uh, was to create uh, a a quite understandable longing uh, on the part 
uh, of our rank-and-file uh, membership for a different sort of politics that was more passionate, that, that, that is more passionate, that is more, in, more, more, more engaging uh, in terms uh, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of ideology. So we did some great stuff in New Labour, but I think, uh, and we did address the issue of inequality. We reduced inequality uh, uh, in this country. We reduced child poverty uh, uh, in this country. And I think the New Labour, the New Labour administration, we need to give ourselves some credit for that. Quite apart from seeking credit, uh, seeking uh, and asking others to give us credit for it. But the mistake we made was, I think, to become overly managerial. We squeezed a lot of the passion and a lot of the vision uh, out of politics, and we're paying the price for that now. Mm -hmm. And we made a mistake, too, frankly, uh, in not recognising what the implications were uh, of uh, uh, of migration, from uh, the newly uh, 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 the new members uh, of the EU from Eastern Europe, what impact it would make uh, on our own uh, on our own country? Uh, we didn't have uh, a, a response uh, in local government to the undoubted pressures that that, w- that were imposed uh, on uh, on housing and on education uh, by uh, the uh, increased numbers uh, of. Uh, of migrants. We didn't address some of the social security issues that have caused a great deal uh, of uh, angst uh, on the part uh, of uh, UK indigenous uh, taxpayers. Uh, It it is actually, you know, it's quite challenging when you can come to the UK, get a job and claim child benefit for children who are not in the UK. That challenges the the UK taxpayers. And I don't think we always recognised the implications of that. Could we talk a little bit about your time as Minister for Young People? And Mm. um, I'd be really interested to hear what you think the the challenges are today for young people, whether you feel like they're the same now as they were at the turn of the century. Where where do you see the big challenges today? There is a a fundamental challenge, uh, and that is to enable the voice of the young person to be heard in the delivery of public services. And that, was, that for me, is, has always been a big challenge. Uh, the civil service and older people uh, don't always listen to young people. Even if they hear them, they don't necessarily listen. It's one thing to hear. It's quite another to listen. Uh, and... I think government departments, local government, central government, has a difficulty in that. And as a result, we let down children and young people very often. Certainly the care system did that, and to a certain extent continues to do that. One of the things I uh, took uh, some... I gave attention to and, and, and... I'm still very committed to is the work that we did around Every Child Matters that still remains, actually, even under this government, the basis uh, of children's policy uh, in, our, in, our, in our country. And in producing Every Child Matters, uh, we did seek to listen to, to young people. 
and particularly to listen to young people in care, particularly to listen to young people in the margins, to listen to young carers, because there's so many young people. I mean, I remember when I was developing the, the carer's strategy, um, uh, uh, this was a carer's strategy for everybody, not just for young, for young people. We discovered that there were, there, were young, there were people as young as eight who were caring for, for a, single, a single mother, a single parent, who for one reason or another, because of mental health problems or other, or other problems, uh, was not able to care for themselves, let alone the child. Um, so you, we have to find ways of listening uh, to, young, to young people and incorporating that listening into our, into our policy, in policy development and service delivery. And that's a continuing problem. We see a parliament that looks more like the country uh, in terms of diversity than it than it did when yeah. you were first elected in 1987. Um, I wonder what you feel um, there is more to do, it, both within increasing diversity within parliament, but then also crucially translating that into wider society. How do you feel that's I mean, going? I celebrate uh, the increased diversity uh, within parliament. I mean, you know, when I came into parliament, uh, I was uh, one. Uh, uh, of uh, four um, uh, black minority ethnic um, uh, MPs, uh, and uh, you know, it's it, for me, it's 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 a source of celebration now that in the, that in this uh, Conservative uh, Party, uh, we now have a broad cross section of the community uh, uh, represented. Similarly, uh, in in the Labour Party, it's now not exceptional uh, to have black and minority ethnic. Ministers in my day, it certainly was. I was the first, uh, and you know we've made real progress there. But what I think uh, the prime minister's uh, work uh, around uh, diversity, and and the prime minister, in my view, Theresa May deserves real credit uh, for the diversity audit uh, that uh, she introduced. Uh, uh, what, and she doesn't necessarily always get it, but she certainly deserves it, in my view. It's one thing she should be remembered for, quite apart from uh, all the issues <laughs> that confront us in our society, and Brexit in particular, is that uh, her diversity audit has been a, r- a real, really important piece of, of, of social, social policy. But what that shows is deep-rooted patterns of discrimination and disadvantage in every walk of life in the UK. without exception. So although we have made real gains, which we should celebrate, the fact of the matter is that if you're black, you're more likely to be arrested, you are more likely to be stopped and searched, you are more likely uh, to to be sentenced to longer imprisonment, you are less likely uh, to go uh, to uh, a a, a Russell Group uh, university, You, you are even less likely to be a professor in a Russell Group uh, uh, university. When you have got a degree, you are less likely to be employed. You are more likely to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And the only explanation for that is racism. So racism remains a gaping wound in the body of Christ. Racism remains uh, 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 something in our society 
which has yet uh, to be uh, to, to be overcome. So we need to celebrate uh, the gains that, that, that have been made, but uh, redouble uh, our efforts. Let's talk um, politics from the pulpit, Paul. Um, how, when you're preparing to preach, um, where does politics stop and faith begin? How do you how do you weave these important social issues into into the way that you read your Bible and into the way that you uh, and into the way that you um, preach to people? You know, I uh, uh, I. Uh, I have lived uh, a life uh, in in politics, but I but I, I've never seen politics uh, as as a career. You know, I'm a lawyer, and I'm an activist. Uh, that's what that's that's what I am. Uh, and uh, politics for me has been always the context in which I've lived my life. So I was brought up in a political family. Um, my uh, mother and father were anti-colonial activists. Um, they they met uh, in the struggle against uh, colonialism in this country. They married, and usually uh, at that time when uh, mixed marriages were ext- uh, were extremely uh, uncommon and frowned upon, and the subject of huge hostility. Um, th- they went to uh, live together as man and wife with me as their child uh, in uh, colonial West Africa. They fought colonialism there. My father, uh, as a lawyer, became an MP, became, became, became a cabinet minister. There was a coup d'etat. He was flung into prison without, without trial, never was tried, held for more than, um, for, for more than three years. Uh, we had to flee the country as refugees, came back to the UK with two suitcases, nothing else, and ended up on a council estate in 1966 in West Hertfordshire in Elmore Hempstead, uh, where, again, you know, that, that was the time of the Vietnam War, that was a time of the struggle against, uh, against apartheid. Politics was just part and parcel of life, of life, whether you were on the right or the left. As a, as a, as a, as a child at, at, at school, at Apsley Grammar School in, on the council estate in, 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 in Hemel, Long Dean as, as now is, the chairman of our school governors, a guy called Councillor Butex, um, he, he was a, also a publican. He had a pub, the Bell, and the High Street in, 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 in old Hemel Hempstead. And he would have, on a monthly basis, debates between the young socialists and the young conservatives. The place would be packed. That's how it was in those days. You know, it was a time of the little red book. Uh, of the of the marches against the bomb. I mean, it was a, it was a very political political time, and so politics has always been part of my life. Um, but my faith has always been part of my life, uh, and I've never sort of put them in little in little boxes. Um, I, I happen to uh, uh, to believe that uh, you know the most important thing in, is to. To to develop your spiritual life, to be to, to seek to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and you can be a follower of Jesus Christ in any political party. So uh, so for me, you know, I I never sort of um, 
take the view that if you're a Methodist, you should vote one way or the other. If you're a Methodist, you should be engaged as a follower of Jesus Christ in, in, in addressing the needs of the poor, the needy, the marginalized, as Christ told us, told us to do. Now, which party you choose to do that in, well, that's a matter for, for, your, for, for your own judgment. But you have to be engaged. So I've never separated uh, the one from the other. But what you try and do, don't we, what we all try and do, uh, is to put Christ at the heart of our thinking uh, and to try uh, and follow him and to understand what he calls us to do, to try and be uh, a, a, a good disciple, to bear witness through our study of, of, of Scripture and through opening ourselves up to engagement with, with other people of faith. And that's the most you can, you can hope to do. So you asked me about what I do as I prepare to, uh, to preach. First and foremost, I go to Scripture. I go to the Bible. And, and I read that and think about that and read what other people have read about that. Then I think about, about my own experience uh, of life. Uh, which includes the law, which includes politics, which includes so many different aspects, as we all have rich and varied experiences. Uh, and then, uh, then I, that's how I prepare to, uh, to preach. But it's, it's, it's about putting Christ at, at the centre of, uh, of everything, if you can. Finally, Paul, I'd, I'd be keen to know on your uh, travels and, and in all of your experiences, hmm. where, where do you see God at work? Where do you see hope in our world? For me, you know, God, you know, God works through and can only work through the part of the Holy Spirit through us. So, you know, there's, you know, we have to be his hands. We have to be, uh, we, we have to walk uh, with him uh, and to follow in the footsteps uh, of uh, our Lord, uh, uh, and when we when we do that, and when we open up ourselves uh, to uh, the Holy Spirit through the power of love, love not as some sort of soft sentiment. Yes, yeah, sure, it's that, but love as a strategy. When when we do that, incredible things happen. And I do see that, and I see that in the most difficult places and circumstances. You know, I saw that during uh, the struggle against apartheid when I was vice moderator in the world in the World Council of Churches. You know, I, I, I've never ever forgotten the moment we were in Lusaka. Bombs were going off in in Lusaka. Uh, the boss, the Bureau of State Security. Uh, of the South African apartheid regime had infiltrated uh, that city. They were attacking uh, ANC uh, uh, activists. Uh, the uh, apartheid regime seemed at its uh, at its height, at its strongest in 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 South in South Africa. Um, Margaret Thatcher was successfully blocking effective uh, effective sanctions. It was a very, very grim situation. And I will never forget a moment when um, 
an, an Afrikaans theologian who at that time was heading up the South African Council of Churches, the Reverend Bears Naude, met uh, for the first time the president of the ANC, who at that time was uh, Oliver Tambo, who had been sent out by Nelson Mandela, who was in prison, to organize the, the liberation struggle externally uh, from, from outside South Africa. The two of them met uh, under the auspices of the World Council of Churches in a, in, in an, a top room, in an upper room, at the top of Pamodzi Lodge, this hotel in Lusaka, in the presence of Kenneth, Kenneth Kawunda. And the two men, you know, one white and Africana, another black, uh, leading a, a, a liberation struggle, a band person, someone uh, who has had a price on his head. The two men met and they fell into each other's arms. And we all prayed. Everyone prayed in that in, in that room. Uh, out of that meeting came the Lusaka Declaration that was a theological um, ex exposition as to why apartheid was a sin. Uh, within 10 years of that, when everything seemed hopeless, Nelson Mandela had been freed and there, were, uh, uh, there, were, there was a non-racial uh, election held and there was a non-racial government elected in South Africa. That would seemed impossible. Uh, you know, I've stood with uh, church women in the pouring rain, in the cold in Frankfurt, who every Thursday morning would gather together outside the South African Consulate and Tourist Bureau. These were just ordinary German church women. And they would pray and they would sing hymns. You know, I, I've, I have myself seen in the Eastern Cape, in, in, uh, in South Africa, in a place called East London, um, met with the Women's Institute uh, and the Mothers' Union there, who uh, have had a, 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 a decades-old relationship uh, with the Mothers' Union and uh, the WI uh, in, uh, in Brighton, uh, in uh, uh, Sussex. Uh, and, you know, these are, they, are, they, are, they are these links between people. They, uh, there is, is, is an activism infused by the Holy Spirit that I have seen at work in so many uh, different settings, in, se in settings not just around the struggle against apartheid, uh, but uh, the, the struggle of ordinary people for decent housing. If you look at, this, look at the origins of the Paddington Churches Housing Association, as was in northwest London. You know, you can say the, 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 the struggles of people for decent, decent health care. You never forget a nun uh, I met in Namibia just, what, three years ago. Uh, who was, you know, living her life in a village in Africa, which uh, w which was undermined by the virus, uh, and yet she was a source of hope. Uh, she was a, she was a, a, a nurse. She was a provider of antiretrovirals. She was care. You know, there are just so many examples of seemingly hopeless situations turn round by the power and the love of God. Mm -hmm. 
and it's that that gives me a sense uh, of, of, of hope. Um, hope springs from memory. And uh, hope is hope. Hope springs uh, eternal through the love uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul, thank you so much for sharing those encouragements with us and, and for sharing your, your thoughts and your time with us today. My pleasure. So with that, we're going to move on to the news. The big story this month, of course, is Brexit and the vote that took place on Theresa May's deal. So Theresa May's deal failed by an absolutely huge margin. She lost to 230 votes, one of the biggest defeats in... Well, the biggest defeat in... Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because in any other circumstance, a government losing on its flagship policy mm. by such an enormous margin. We're talking 230 votes that she lost by. And in, and, in, 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 and in any other time, that government would not survive, that the Prime Minister would, would resign and, and um, a new government would be formed or we would have a general election. But, but Theresa May is this master of survival, isn't she? She just carries on. And, and in some ways, that dogged determination has been a good thing through the negotiations. She did manage to negotiate a deal with the European Union, but it does mean that she has not been... She has not been willing until now to engage in any kind of constructive dialogue. And it's interesting that now she is making an offer to the leaders of other parties. She's saying that she wants to to talk with them and that she's willing to discuss proposals that might get through the House. I wonder whether whether this has come a little bit too late, that the parties are so entrenched on their positions now in a way that they might not have been uh, in in June 2017 when, when she lost her overall majority that it might be too late for that constructive dialogue to happen. Uh, Bethan, you're, you're more in tune with what's going on in the Labour Party. Why do you think that the Labour Party isn't yet willing to come behind a second referendum? Oh, that's a very good question. It's, I think it comes down to a very similar thing that has previously happened in the Conservative Party where people within the party have different opinions on what's the best thing for our country and also for democracy. There's this ongoing argument about whether another referendum means more democracy or if it actually means undermining previous decisions. And honestly, um, I mean, I can't talk for the Labour Party, I'm not a spokesman, but um, there's a real conflict within not just the Labour Party but the Conservative Party as well about whether that's the right decision and whether MPs should take on their representative role and speak for the people or if they should put the decision back to the people. I mean, it does feel looking from the outside that Jeremy Corbyn, as one of the conditions for his willingness to engage in discussions with Theresa May, he's offering, he's saying that he'll engage if Theresa May takes no deal off the table. And I don't think that's a viable option for the Prime Minister. He's making an offer that he knows that she can't accept. He's he's asking her to promise something that she can't because we are weeks now rather than months away from leaving the European Union. And if no deal... Uh, is arranged that that can command the confidence of the House, unless we see the House move to make no deal impossible, um, we will leave on March 29th with no deal and and begin to trade with the European Union on WTO terms. So Mm. I don't think it's a realistic proposition that Jeremy Corbyn is offering to Theresa May, and it, it does make you wonder the extent to which he's willing to engage at all. And I think that's a shame, particularly at a time when we really need constructive dialogue, when we really need the parties to be thinking much more in the national interest than in their own interest. It does feel at the moment like the discussion um, across parties is is more is more partisan than we might like it to be. 
Another perspective on that could be that Jeremy Corbyn is has taken a lot of pressure from members of his own party to try and make sure there isn't a no-deal situation. It's something that we keep hearing again and again, that um, MPs do not want no-deal because they fear the economic repercussions that could come of it. And it may well be the, pa- the case that Jeremy Corbyn has had to take that pressure on from his fellow MPs and put that ultimatum to the Prime Minister. But you are right in saying that it's a very difficult line to toe because the PM has to try and find a deal which 230 people will agree on when they have previously despised almost all of it. Mm. And also, this is made all the more complex when Brussels have said that they will not be renegotiating unless Theresa May changes her red lines. Now, this may change in the coming weeks. Brussels may change their mind. However, for the Prime Minister to have this ultimatum from Jeremy Corbyn about a no deal and to also need to create a deal that 230 MPs who have previously voted down will change their minds is a very tricky situation. And to compound that all, Theresa May has to come back with a plan B very, very soon, and it has been announced that that will be voted on on the 29th of January. So this all has to happen incredibly quickly. And as for the feasibility of that, I think it's it's almost impossible for such a fast turnaround to happen in any other realm of life to get 230 people to agree with you who didn't agree with you previously in less than a month is almost impossible, maybe even impossible. Well, this is the trouble with the scale of the defeat, was that if mm-hmm. Theresa May's uh, withdrawal agreement had been voted down, say, by um, 60 or 70 members of parliament, it might have been possible for her to make some adjustments to, to gain further assurances on the backstop from the European Union and, and um, win round support. But it's like you say, Bethany, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine her persuading the Conservative MPs who are as yet unpersuaded to, to vote for this deal, particularly because it's not just one set of concerns she needs to address. You've got people, uh, you take the European Research Group members, their uh, concern is about sovereignty and, and about the fact that we would be losing sovereignty if we, if we enter an agreement with the European Union uh, where they have some kind of final say on, on when the backstop would be uh, finished. But you've also got people in the Conservative Party, people like Anna Soubry and Sarah Wollaston, uh, who are looking at the possibility of either a very soft Brexit or remaining in the European Union. And so she's having to deal not only with a a house that's divided, but also a party that's divided, like Jeremy Corbyn. There are different concerns here. And so it's really, really difficult to see how she can get this deal through the house because she's having to deal with these dual concerns. They say that a week is a long time in politics, but it would seem in these days that 24 hours is also a very, very long time (laughs) in politics. It feels like a long time in politics, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, our government might as well be shut down, given that it can't really pass anything through mm. uh, the Commons. Uh, the government in the United States remains shut down, and, and it's extraordinary um, that 800,000 people, 800,000 federal employees are continuing to work, many of them, and, and are not being paid because uh, Donald Trump cannot reach an agreement with congressional Democrats and even some congressional Republicans about getting his uh, budget passed, uh, uh, about getting... Um, financing for his border wall. Mm. Um, Important to note that this was a key pledge that Donald Trump made Mm. um, all the way through his campaign for president from June 2015 right up until election night 2016, those those enormous rallies that Donald Trump held. The two major themes that he stuck with again and again were uh, lock Hillary Clinton up and build that wall. Mm. And he really is under pressure to deliver on this. He's under pressure from his base to to deliver on this promise. 
But it's also worth thinking, I think, and we, we talked a little bit about this earlier off air, didn't we, Bethan, that this in many ways is a shorthand for a wider anti-immigration mm-hmm. stance. As Will was saying, this push from Trump towards the wall is something that he feels that he really needs to do in order to run again in 2020, although it feels like a very long way away. In American politics, the electoral cycle goes on forever, and so 2020 isn't that far away. The Democrats are already beginning to uh, form presidential campaigns uh, exactly. at this stage. And Trump almost certainly will desire to run again. Um, and in order to do that, he has to convince his base that he wants this to happen. And now it could be said that Trump has had two years to push this wall through. And that's true, he has, but he's also had um, pushback from other Republicans. But in my opinion, this is because he needs to start showing his voter base that he is trying. And if that means the um, shutdown of an entire government, then he's willing to sacrifice that. There's a question here about whether a border wall would solve the problem as well. Um, clearly, there is a need to prevent people from making what is a very treacherous journey to the United States from Mexico. There is absolutely a need to prevent uh, drug smuggling across the border. There is a question here about whether a border wall is the most effective way of, of preventing that. I would mm. argue clearly it isn't the best way mm. of preventing that. There's also the matter of what it says about a country that erects an, erects an enormous wall on its border. And point. it does show that opinion, that country's opinion to cross-cultural cooperation and cross-governmental cooperation as well, um, because I think it's, it's pretty obvious to say that the building of a wall will not help communication to increase. Um, however, I do think it's also a testament to the oversimplification of these issues. A wall is a very simple way of attempting to deal with an incredibly, incredibly complicated problem. And it's been seen all throughout Trump's, um, not only his campaign, but also his time as president, in that he's attempted to um, simplify these incredibly complex things into statements. And that is simply not true in regards to the n- number of people who are as he calls them, illegal criminal people crossing into the border. Also, not surprising that it's so emotive to so many people because Trump has pushed this idea of invasion and criminality and danger all throughout his time as as president and his campaign. And it's no surprise that that has made people afraid of what the future could hold if this border wall was not erected. There's one thing we can be sure about with with the 2020 election coming up, it is that these complex problems will be boiled down Mm -hmm. uh, in simple sound bites. And I would focus on the Democratic candidates who put forward their own positive vision rather than focusing on the candidates who engage with Donald Trump on these cultural wedge issues. Mm. There is no law to say that the shutdown has to last a certain amount of time and it can go on for as long as it likes. So in the coming weeks and months, it will be really interesting to see where this goes and whether a compromise can be made or if Donald Trump and the Democrats refuse to find um, something to agree upon. It's really important that we keep those people not at fault in our prayers, especially those attempting to make the treacherous journey into America. Also, those 800,000 people working for the federal government who are currently not being paid. One of my favourite things about Christmas is getting lots of exciting new books in my stocking. And Bethan and I both got Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, and, and I'm really enjoying it. I'm about halfway through and it's it's great to learn a bit more about her background growing up on the south side of Chicago. It's so striking uh, thinking about the American context, how different uh, the role of leaders' spouses, isn't it? That um, mm-hmm. Michelle Obama was, is, a, is an extremely... Uh, intelligent and and capable person and that she was able to 
involve herself in in her husband's presidency in a in a way that uh, Laura Bush and, and Hillary Clinton and, and many other previous first ladies have tea. Uh, Bethany, you have not yet got started on Michelle Obama because you're reading something else. One of my New Year's resolutions was an attempt to read more non-fiction and I've been reading a memoir called Educated by Tara Westover. It's an absolutely fabulous book. It's about a young girl um, who was brought up in rural Idaho um, into a family that believed that the end of days was coming. Uh, Her father spent much of her childhood stocking up on um, food and fuel and weapons ready for the end days. Um, And it's just a really brilliant book about her experience of growing up in this family. When she, as a child, she didn't have a birth certificate, she didn't go to school. From a government perspective, she didn't even exist. And the book focuses on her childhood going into her adulthood, about how she became educated as a young woman and how she had to educate herself because her family wouldn't allow her to go to school. And it's a really beautifully written memoir. It reads a lot like a novel. Um, but it is absolutely fabulous and I'd recommend it to anyone who wants to really get into the the life and the experiences of someone who grew up in a very different way. Um, it's also beautifully written, so if anyone wants to read something really very poignant and very moving, I'd recommend it. Well, that's all we have time for today on Faith in Politics. As ever, we're very grateful for your company and uh, do get in touch through the Joint Public Issues team website uh, if you have any suggestions or any issues that you'd like us to talk about. So until next time, thank you very much for listening and we hope you have a lovely month.